0: grace on fire episode 69 you're listening to grace on fire home of grace nation it's not just another podcast it's the voice of a movement join now at mygracenation.com mygracenation.com do you dig it? dude I love this song it's just awesome it's so awesome. Every time I, do it, I just, every time I listen to it, I just get super excited about this. Here it comes. Yeah. Here we go. And hello, Grace Nation, and welcome to the show. My name is the Reverend Dr. Jonathan G. Smith, a.k.a. Smitty, and I'm your online pastor. And my goal is to help you craft your life for a higher purpose. And that higher purpose today, my friends, is overcoming racial narratives with the gospel. You know, I'm just, just so super sick and tired of everything that's been going on in our country. And uh, I just decided I'm just going to keep talking about this because I know there's a couple of other brothers out there, uh, pastors who are leading the charge. And I'm just embarrassed that I haven't picked up the mantle on this and done a better job. And so I am talking about racial narratives and the gospel because beloved my brothers and sisters out there we have got to do a better job here on the show of talking about issues and that is you know if we stop and think about this this show the whole principle of the show is applying god's grace to every aspect of life i mean if someone asked me to say hey jonathan what's what's grace nation about then i'll just say hey listen brother it's about applying god's grace to to every day and every area of our life. And, so, you know, that's not, that is not easy to do. And the reason why is because God's grace is ultimately about God's good news or God's gospel. And we really suck at doing that. I mean, I'm just going to say that right up front, okay? Every time we doubt, Things that, you know, every time we get cynical, we get burned out, we get angry, we do these things. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're doubting the gospel. And so we have to be constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. And, you know, the question is, how do we really apply this? in these racial circumstances. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I, I am not good at this conversation. I'm going to try to do a better job because ultimately I'm dissatisfied even with where I'm at in this conversation. But uh, beloved, I certainly hope that I'm going to bring you some thoughts here today from scripture as to what we're going to talk about. Also on the show today, uh, we're going to be doing a little bit more street theology, taking a little step aside from the Anglican thing for just a moment. By the way, I'm not going to blast you all the time uh, with my uh, passion for Anglicanism, Gospel-Centered Anglicanism, Uh, and we're going to get into a little bit about that uh, in the future. Uh, I'm actually thinking about doing a new podcast dedicated to that subject, so if that's something you're interested in, I'd love to hear from you about that. Um, But we're going to talk about, in street theology today, the need for a mentor. And this is coming straight out of me just cruising through the Bible, uh, as I have been for this past year. I've been doing a systematic reading of of the Bible called the Grace on Fire five-day reading challenge. And by the way, if you haven't done that, if you didn't take me up on that uh, a year ago, the uh, a new opportunity is gonna be coming up in January to sign up for that, the uh, Grace on Fire reading challenge. So be looking forward to that because uh, I'm really, really passionate about people systematically reading their Bible. And I have a mechanism for that to happen. And so if you are interested in that, stay tuned for details in upcoming shows. I'll tell you a little bit more about that In the future, but we're going to be talking about the need for a mentor. Also, on the tip of the week, I'm going to be talking to you about just a simple issue, just a simple reminder about exhaustion and the stupid things that we do when we get exhausted. And so, we're getting ready to jump right into some street theology. So, here we go. Here we are on Grace on Fire. Connecting deep truth for everyday life. This is theology on the street. And so, in my reading that I've been doing over the past year, I've I've gone to the book of First Kings. Now, you know, the whole book of Kings, which, by the way, includes uh, One Kings and Two Kings. I mean, it's it's essentially the um, the the decline of the nation of Israel, all right? That's what it's about. And it's also about the prophets essentially warring against the kings and the prophets of God coming to the kings saying, oh, great king, you shouldn't be doing this. And it's the constant tension between uh, the federal power of the king and the prophetic power of God and those two things clashing together. And so one of the things that, one of the stories that has just been constantly reeling around in my mind is the story of Roboam. And real Roboam, let me just kind of give you some background. So Roboam was a douchebag king. He was really one of the first douchebag kings. He was the son of King Solomon, which was uh, after David, the greatest king of Israel. And Solomon really would have been an amazing guy if he had not fallen victim to His wives. I mean, he essentially had so many wives and he began to serve their gods, and he ultimately ended up in idolatry, and that set in motion um, the decline of Israel that lasted uh, for several centuries. So, Rehoboam comes along and he is the um, son of Solomon. Okay, so can you imagine? Here's Solomon, the greatest and most wise king in all the world. He expanded the wealth of Israel to the point where the Bible actually says that silver was as common, um, was as common as thing as dirt or something like that. I have to go back and check the reference. You can Google it. All right. Um, You know, I, I trust you. You're smart people. Uh, I just don't remember exactly. But it was extremely common. In other words, there was so much wealth in Israel at the point of Solomon that um, it, it was just uh, it, it was just inundated. The economy was great underneath Solomon. And then he dies. Right. And now you're the son of of Solomon and your Rehoboam. And the problem with being the son of Solomon is that you basically are raised in wealth. You're raised in power. You're raised in exuberance. You're raised in 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 plenty. So you don't know what it's like to have need. And this is always the issue. So if you know wealthy people and then you know the the children of wealthy people, the wealthy people themselves can be incredibly grounded, neat people But then they have these kids and they're they're douchebags. And, you know, you look at them, you're thinking, what are you thinking? Why are you wasting? Why are you this way? And part of the problem with that is that sometimes um, children who do not go through the struggles that parents go through, um, sometimes they take for granted all the things that have been given to them. And I actually have to tell you that, honestly, I do think that Rehoboam falls into this because Rehoboam, as we'll discover, um, made a horrible decision that ultimately cost him 85% of his kingdom. He lost 85% of his kingdom over one decision. Now, can you imagine being that guy? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can you imagine that? Imagine uh, I was just trying to think about you know a modern day example of this. But let's just say that you are a very successful business owner. You raise a billion dollar company. Hey, well, we could use Microsoft, Bill Gates, for example. Let's just say um, that Bill Gates um, has this incredible business, Microsoft. He gives it to his son, and then his son makes one decision which cost him 85% of the business. I mean, that's just unfathomable. Now, we, we can see examples of kids who squander their parents over time, but this was just one decision. And ultimately, what it will show is the foolishness of Rehoboam and his arrogance. And, and what I want to drive us at today is in this segment of Street Theology, is that I think that we need to be very aware of the kind of advisors that we put around us now i have to tell you that one of the things that i've learned over the years uh, especially being a pastor one of the things that i have come to appreciate is that it's very difficult for me to get unbiased information all right it's just extraordinarily difficult and so the people that i give permission to to speak into my life those people those people are vetted people these are people that i would trust with my life, essentially, I mean, there's just a very few, there's a handful of men that I will listen to. And then everybody else, I'm sorry, I can't listen to you. And the reason for that is because I cannot get unbiased information. I was talking to my wife about this. Uh, you know, one of the challenges that I have uh, as a pastor, sometimes I just wonder, you know, why was God calling me into this Anglican thing? I mean, I'm so passionate about it, so don't hear me, hear me wrong, but sometimes I'm just like, why did God call me into this craziness? And so what I ultimately deduce from all of this is that God has put this, in, this, put this thing in my life at this time and this is the church that he's called me to serve, right? But if I take this and I take this challenge to people, depending on their backgrounds, one of two things will happen. They'll either say, stick with it or you need to leave. And, you know, why are you wasting your time? I actually had a pastor say that to me one time. I was like, why are you wasting your time with that? And, um, you know, is this really something that's even worth it? I was like, wow, that's, that's, man, thanks a lot, brother, appreciate it. You know, I mean, it's just, you have to be so careful about this. And, and, and so getting back to scripture for just a moment, the need for a godly mentor in your life, I think is crucial. It is crucial in order to help you make good decisions in your life. Some of the worst decisions I've made in life was a direct result of listening to to peer let me rephrase that listening some of the worst decisions i've made in life has been a direct result of listening to foolish peers instead of listening to godly men and so I want to just stop here and let me just kind of give you the background. So we're talking about Rehoboam and, and the story actually ends up in in 1 Kings 12. And here was the problem. So Solomon, Solomon, Solomon had, uh, his legacy was he essentially built the temple. He built the palace there at Jerusalem. He, I mean, he built up the city and that required an enormous amount of of, of labor. It required enormous amount of resources. And it required an enormous amount of work on behalf of the people. And so if you read through scripture, you'll find uh, the different divisions of labor, etc. And uh, the problem was, of course, is that every time Solomon had a new idea, it required investment and it required work. And And Solomon didn't just build up Jerusalem, but he built around all the different cities. And, and so you just get this idea of this industrious, wise king who was constantly building and investing and as a result of it the economy exploded but now think about this for just a moment if you continually task your people over and over again uh, it's going to lead to exhaustion and so Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam uh, now uh, ascends to the throne and so he goes to the people and he calls for them all right and now, let me just add one more detail on this, okay? So he calls for the people to, to, to come forward, and then there's a guy who shows up in the story named Jeroboam. So you have Rehoboam, and you have Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was a nemesis of Solomon, and Jeroboam basically fled Solomon to Egypt, and he stayed under Egypt, who was, an, uh, who was a rival of uh, Solomon at the time. And so Jeroboam comes back and Jeroboam hates Solomon and he also hates Solomon's legacy, so he probably hates Rehoboam. So Rehoboam goes and there's Jeroboam with all the assembly of Israel and this is what they said. They said to him, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. Now, think about what they're saying. You've got employees who are disgruntled, they've been working their tails off and... um. Now they're asking for a little bit of relief. And so now you have two kinds of counsel that emerge here in this text. You have what's considered wise counsel of the old men that used to serve and advise Solomon. And you also have the young counsel or the foolish counsel. Now, think through this for just, think through this very carefully. Because if you have advisors to Solomon, chances are, that they will have benefited from the wisdom of Solomon. Now, they also would have been very much uh, indebted to Solomon. So I can see and see in Rehoboam the temptation to not want to listen to them because he doesn't want to be like their father. And therefore, he may ignore the wisdom that is there for him to employ. And this is the wise counsel. So listen to the counsel that is given. This is so biblical. It's so good. This is what they said to him. They said, if you, Rehoboam, will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. And then it goes on to say, but Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. So basically what he did was he said, yeah, whatever you old guys, I'm not going to listen to you. And so he goes, hangs out with his peers. He says, listen, homies, this is what we want to, this is what I want to know. What should I say? And then listen to their counsel now. Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now where my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And then you get the final verse there in in the narrative. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So Rehoboam very foolishly takes the counsel of these young guys, of his friends, of his homies, goes back to his, to the people and he basically says what the wise guys say, or excuse me, the, uh, the young guys say, and essentially they rebelled. And what happened was that the 10 tribes of Israel followed Jeroboam and they broke from Judah and Rehoboam lost 85% of his kingdom. And the commentator who's writing in 1 Kings here says, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Can you imagine the historical legacy here of this decision? If Rehoboam had just listened to the counsel of the wise leaders, all of that could have been avoided. Now, would the tension have erupted somewhere else? Surely, it could have. But what you ultimately find is this, is the need for godly wisdom. Now, why did this happen if you go on and read uh, First Kings, and you read a little bit further. What you'll discover is is that this was part of God's judgment on Israel because it had abandoned the faith of King David and also Jeroboam and Rehoboam, for the most part, will abandon the faith and most of the kings will abandon the faith and you'll see this constant tension of good kings and bad kings who, uh, bad kings who bring Israel into idolatry and good kings that try to reform it and bring it back and you, you will find this tension throughout Israel and Judah for the remaining part of the narrative of kings but here is the point that I want to drive home today. Imagine the cost of, of input and what it's at stake in your lives, all right? It is so critical, I think, that you find godly leaders that will speak into your lives, that will speak what is best for you and what's in your best interest, even if you don't agree with it. And listen to what they have to say because you could avoid the possibility of catastrophe in your life. The other thing is is that you need to also weigh very carefully the amount of value that you give peers because peers, if they are colleagues with you, particularly in the same age, they have, generally speaking, the same level of experience that you do. And so you need to be careful with what they're telling you because sometimes if we think about it, the reason why there are peers is because we want them to like us and we like to hang out with them. They make us feel good. But a godly mentor will have the To strength of character, to say, you know what, you know, this, you may not want to do this. This could be a big mistake. And there's been a couple of times where I've had to very carefully and very thoughtfully think through the advice that I was being given, Uh, even from old guys, I will tell you. But I had to think very carefully through the advice that I was being given because the outcome that they were describing was a very real thing and so uh on street theology today i think that the need for a biblical mentor in your life is is right there find godly wisdom from experienced mentors it will help you avoid costly mental errors in your life and now for smitty's life hack tip of the week and that brings me to my tip of the week and that is beware Of exhaustion. I got to tell you this. I'm going to keep pounding this because I think it's something that if you're not aware of it, particularly as you get older in life, uh, it can really creep up to you. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because uh, exhaustion ultimately leads to burnout. And that's the problem Uh, in an article in Psychological uh, Psychology Today. Um, It talks about it this way, in a meeting with the group, uh, let let me back up, burnout is a state of chronic stress that leads to physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism and detachment and feelings of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. Now, for me, I can work through physical and emotional exhaustion, but cynicism is a real problem it's a real problem for me because I can tell you as a pastor that sometimes I could get really cynical about my work and, and that's because the labor of pastors is hard. Uh, in a meeting with a group of pastors, um, today I was a part of, which is, you know, part of my exhaustion patterns is that my calendar is so full of things. And one of those things is that I, I participate in, a and it's essentially it's a support group for pastors. Hi, my name is Smitty and I'm an online pastor and, uh, this is my problem. I mean, I run into that a lot. Um, uh, I have to have my own support group uh, just pastoring them. I mean, it's hard. it's hard work. So anyways, but one of the things about that came out of this was that so much of the dangers and the possibilities that of, da- of, of failure that ha- can occur to pastors is principally resulted because we're so busy. And we get exhausted and this is true for not just pastors but it's true for any busy professional if you're going so hard so fast so long you know you can ultimately burn out and you can get exhausted so if you're finding yourself exhausted you need to take some time to rest and rest can happen in a lot of different ways But make certain that you're looking for the signs of burnout, because if you get there, it can destroy your career. And you have too much. You have too much to give in a career. You have too much. You know, remember something that part of crafting our life for a higher purpose is ultimately that our purpose isn't to, you know, you know, serve our pension. It's to follow our passion. And if we're chasing money and if we're chasing activities all because we just got to make the dollar and we got to do this, we got to do that. I got to pay the bills. I got to do this. Ultimately, that's a recipe for burnout. And so exhaustion is one of those things that I think is just a warning sign from God that says, hey, hey, you're getting off your purpose here. Let's get it back here. All right. Slow down and rest. And now it's time for our feature presentation. And on my feature presentation today we are talking about gospel narratives and and also racial narratives in a possible way forward. And, and, and essentially these narratives of what I'm talking about, gospel narratives and racial narratives. You know, what am I talking about here? Well, I wanted to follow up with a couple of weeks ago because I was talking with, uh, again, a friend of mine and we're talking about the NFL theme and I was talking about my podcast in the last episode. And, you know, honestly, I just, I was a little unhappy with how I could, excuse me, <laughs> it's hard for me to uh, admit my failures. But anyways, I was a little unhappy with, you know, really where I went with the NFL theme and uh, the, uh, the protesting and all of that, because honestly, I have not spent enough time reflecting on the issues of racial narratives because racial narratives are a very powerful thing. So what is a racial narrative? Well, essentially a racial narrative is the stories that um, different, different ethnic groups tell each other. It's a way of forming identities. And and we all have different forms of racial narratives uh, that we tell each other, and it helps us make sense of the world. All right, and and everybody has one. White guys have them, black guys have them, you know, Latino guys have them. We all have them, and 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 what they do is they help us make sense of the the realities that we're facing. So a black man walks into a white neighborhood and he experiences you know looks or grimaces. Why? Why is he? Why is he experiencing this? He goes back to his family and he says, "Well, this is why." And and basically, what he gives is a narrative uh, of color, right? Of skin color. And that, those narratives, whether they're false or true, what they do is they help explain and make sense of reality. And the reason why I'm spending a little time to this today is because you know my biggest complaint uh, about Politics these days is that it's so race related. It's so uh, the rhetoric is so um, inundated and, and politicized and electrified by race, and it feels like that the politicians are pitting groups against each other in, in such a way that I've become extremely aware and even sensitive of my own skin color, and and that really I'm mean, just kind of explain to you what what I'm talking about. You know, particularly during the president presidential election, I had this very strange thing that happened to me. I was changing my son's diaper. And as I was changing his diaper, you know, I was looking at his little, I was cleaning his butt. And, you know, I mean, just get the picture here, okay? Here I am, a dad, changing my son's diaper because uh, he probably had a poop or a pee or something. And I'm wiping him up. And I'm looking at him, I was like, he's got this white butt. And then I realized something and in that moment I, I looked and I thought about my other son and I thought about my two sons and I thought they're going to inherit a world where because they were born white, all of the problems of of different ethnic groups and all of the biases, all of the hatred is going to essentially be imputed onto them. Now that word imputed is a really critical word. I'm using that word very important. It, it, it literally means to be assigned to to them. And as they were born into this world, they're not racist. In fact, we don't even use the word black to describe African Americans in our household. And I, and I've done that purposely um, because I always am interested to hear what they say about their friends who are African Americans. All right. And they will always say, you know, he has brown skin is the way that they describe it. It's going kind of Brown. I'll never forget my daughter when the first time that she ever, um, uh, began to describe and notice the differences uh, between skin colors. She would say, "You know, you know, she's got this kind of brownish skin," and she was, and she was literally talking about an African American girl. And that was—I I didn't call her a black girl. I didn't use this word. I didn't even use the phrase African American because I wanted her not to focus on the skin color because I wanted her to focus on the person, and and that was my way as her father, purposely. Trying to avoid imposing any narratives on her friend because I was just excited. I was like, "Oh, cool! She's got you know a friend uh, who's essentially African American, young little girl, and she was beautiful." And we had her over a party, and I remember that party very well because um, it it was a, there was there was a little bit of tension, and I just was like, "Why? Why? Why are we feeling this? Where is this coming from?" And I think it comes from these narratives, these narratives that we say in our in our culture. Uh, about stories and so anyways that that's really the issue the bottom line issue and and as i thought about that i realized i said you know i need to stop and think about the narratives that african-american young men go through and so i stopped and and i actually read an article i did a little um work on this and um what i what i read was a blog and it was a blog describing what a black man may go through listen to a white church. And I, I hate these words, black and white. I mean, it's just dumb. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a pinkish color. Um, I've got freckles and, 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 hair all over me. Um, but I'm certainly white, I guess. Um, but, you know these 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 words that we use to describe our, our ethnic backgrounds and our stories. Sometimes they're they're so binary that, they, they, that the 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 binary language themselves is problematic. But anyways, it was a black guy that was in a white church and he was talking about blackness and and the experience of blackness and and what he was describing here made a lot of sense to me. That when he goes into a situation. Where you essentially have Caucasian males everywhere. We can use that word Caucasian. You know, white guys. He is immediately aware that the color of his skin carries with it all of the prejudices and you know uh, 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 preconceptions of of everybody else. All the narratives that go to inform who he may be. And that he feels like that he has to work doubly hard to earn the respect of whoever it is that he's trying to appeal to because of the color of his skin. Now, I was listening to that. And then the reverse of that is is the idea of white privilege that I don't have to go into the same situation because I don't have, you know, a a dark skin color. And so I don't have to overcome those narratives, although I have my own share of narratives that I have to overcome, um, which I, which the problem with white privilege, I think, is that th- there's a misunderstanding of, of the uh, complexities that everybody goes through, and we have our own narratives that we have to go through and work through, et cetera, et cetera. So anyways, the point being here is that as I was listening to him, I said, okay, if he's talking about the fact that prejudice that we make judgments of people based upon their presentations, and these narratives that are floating out there are at work filling the gaps and helping us make sense of the world, then I can understand the issue far better. Because, what, because all of us, in, in some way or another, have to deal with narratives that are limiting to who we are. And I'm going to give you my narrative in just a, just a moment. But before we do that, I want you to, to, to stop for a moment because the, the bottom line for all of us as Christians that I believe is that we have to challenge those narratives as they're being applied to us because the gospel of Jesus Christ puts a new narrative into reality. All right, and it's not just white evangelicalism. All right, white evangelicalism needs a new narrative. All right, and I and I am fully recognize the problem with white suburban evangelicalism. I never even saw that phrase or even knew that phrase existed till a number of years ago when I was reading when I was doing theological work, and I realized I was like, yeah, white suburban evangelicalism, yeah, that's a real thing, and that's where I came from, and it did shelter me, and it was full of pri- privilege. And I probably can't relate to people that were raised in the inner city in poverty. And I probably can't relate uh, to other ethnic groups. I can tell you that my inability to relate uh, to groups that are different than myself became acutely uh, real in my life when I visited Central America and I went to the city dump. I can't tell you what it does to you when you walk into a community of people, four or 500 people that live in 10 by 10, 10 shacks, literally 10 sheets of metal that they've built their house in, you know, and, and suddenly I'm supposed to bring good news. This white guy from, you know, the suburbs of Orlando, it it just, it, it just, this whole issue Really became very real to me. And and, and talking with our missionary who's down there, and I've had him on the show, Dana Kraft, um, and talking with him and the challenges that he has to relate, you know, what do you bring? Because they have a narrative that's at work. And if you don't believe that Central Americans, particularly Guatemalans, uh, don't have a narrative, you should go to their White House in Guatemala City and listen to the cultural narrative they talk about when they talk about the spaniards who came over and conquered uh the local indians they have a whole mural dedicated to this narrative and um how the spaniards brought christianity and brought progress and brought all of these things these are actual murals that are embedded into uh the guatemalan culture and taught to the people now you know that is a remarkable thing into itself and, and the pride that, it, that, um, that the Guatemalans felt about this. It's, all right, so they have their own societal narratives, and I, I'm not going to say whether they're true or right or wrong. I'm just telling you that they have this narrative, and we have a narrative here in America, and the American narrative includes the issue of Southern slavery and chattel slavery that occurred in the American South. And what you find, though, is that there's also a narrative, a racial narrative in Scripture. And you find this actually, it's really all of a sudden just shows up here in Colossians 3.11. Here it is. Uh, Let me read it to you. It says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, notice a couple of things here. He talks about Gentiles. He talks about Jews. He talks about circumcised versus uncircumcised. He's talking about barbarians, Scythians, slave, and free. Now, the only two ethnic groups that are even identified in verse 11, surprisingly, is actually Jews and Scythians. Now, why did Paul mention Jews and Scythians? I mean, that's a pretty interesting question right there because all the other groups you know, are just general categories circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian. Well, that can include lots of different groups of people, slaves, free. But then he mentions Jews and Scythians. And to be mentioned a Scythian, that was gener- a generalized term for a rude, ignorant, degraded person. The Scythians, according to scholars, were a nomadic people that existed on the edge of the Roman Empire. Actually, in the Russian areas, if, in modern-day Russia, if you look uh, beyond the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, they were a nomadic people there. They were Scythians, and you know, notice that it, notice the um, progression here. Circumcised or I'm sorry, barbarian or Scythian. To be called a Scythian uh, was something to be uh, complete. It, it, it really was a uh, a Scythian comment. If you were being called a Scythian, I mean, that was a really degrading statement. Like, you Scythian. Like, ugh. I mean, I think that there are some 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 modern words that we could probably choose from our own uh, uh, vocabulary that could be substitute in there. We're not going to do that because I don't think that that would be right uh, on this show. One of the things that I do not like on the show, you know, yeah, I'll cuss and, and do those sort of things, but I hate degrading people. I absolutely hate degrading people. I, I think that that's a terrible thing. But but to be called a scythian was pretty awful. But but Paul does something here, and he basically is saying that the gospel neutralizes differences. The gospel neutralizes differences. And so the problem with cultural narratives and and what Paul's trying to do here is he's saying, listen, you have to put on a new narrative, a new racial narrative, a new cultural narrative onto your person. Why? Because something radical has happened, and that is the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ has now ascended into the world or descended into the world. And that, is, and that is the problem that I ultimately find with racial narratives because today, the culture that we live in, we must recognize that it is not a Christian culture, all right? In fact, it is the absence of Christian culture. In fact, it's a secular culture that tries to deny the existence of God. And when you have a denial of ethics and you have a denial of the fundamental realities of a higher power of god you will have a vacuum and what rushes into a vacuum are these different narratives now let me talk to you about my own narrative all right i this is my narrative all right i'm an american first but i'm also a southerner i'm also a floridian and I like to joke around calling myself a cracker and a redneck. Now, being raised, I was raised by my father. My father was a CPA. All right. He had a white collar job, but on the weekends, he would refer to himself as a redneck. And, and you know, my dad's from Georgia and um, he was he was a pretty funny guy and um you know, he, he was an old Southerner. My father was raised in a time during Jim Crow laws in Georgia. And in fact, my brother actually went through the desegregation of schools in the 60s. Um, and what you'll find, and, and, and he'll even tell you that it, that was a very difficult time when desegregation was happening. And so I grew up with stories of hearing about racial tension. In fact, uh, I have an old story of my great-great-grandfather who would not watch TV shows. Actually, my great-grandfather would not watch TV shows if African-Americans were on the show. So I can sit here and tell you today that I came essentially from a background of racism. I can say that. And... Do I feel that way towards my African-American brothers? No. Do I do things that may contribute to their perception uh, that, I, that I have white privilege? Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that at all. And it's something that I'm working on. It's something that I want to work on. But what I can't change is who I am, just like uh, an African-American brother cannot change who he is. Well, the only thing that we can do is look at our narratives that we're using to define us and begin to question them. Are they true? Are they true? Is that who I am today? And as the narrative that I'm imposing on somebody else, is that true of them? And I can only tell you that that, that requires a lot of work, a lot of work. And that's why I believe as a Christian, I have to replace my narrative with a new one. And that is ultimately finding my identity in Jesus Christ. You know, because I, I am constantly amazed at how narratives work against each other. And the problem, what I see that happened in our politics, and our, in, in, particularly in our culture today, is that uh, politicians have picked up on these narratives and they are now pitting these narratives against each other. And I think that that's a wrong thing to do. I think that's poor leadership. I think that's the kind of leadership that Jeroboam and Rehoboam would have done. That's not uh, biblical wisdom. That's not Davidic wisdom. That you know, we need leaders who will rise above these things. But unfortunately, what we've done is we've elected leaders who are feeding into it. And I think that's the worst thing of all. So how do we how do we overcome racial narratives? You know, I've got a couple of ideas. This, this is not all-encompassing, and I think that there are uh, some some guys that are doing a much better job than I am in articulating the issues, but these are my thoughts, and so here are my thoughts on this. Okay, so first of all, the solution to racial narratives, I think, first of all, the church must do a better job of addressing the reality of narratives in general. You know, we as pastors must address the reality of stories. People tell stories about themselves, whether they're false or true, whether they're real, whether they're realized or unrealized, whether they are based on facts that have happened in their lives or based upon fears or things that they're afraid of because those fears have been inherited by parents. Uh, we have to do a better job of addressing the reality of narratives. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is we also have to be aware that because of competing narratives and biases in our lives, that we may have been guilty of committing injustice. And sometimes, when someone says that it is unjust and wrong, we're not aware of the narrative lenses that we're that we are reading and interpreting what they're saying. That's what narratives do. They help interpret and inform reality. And so therefore, if the narrative that we have is in conflict with theirs and we can't understand what they're saying, it's probably because the narrative that's in place uh, is, is competing with each other. And I have to say that overcoming those narratives is very difficult and it requires a lot of patience. So when injustice occurs, we need to stop and listen Is injustice really occurring? And even if I don't think it's occurring, maybe I need to just slow down a little bit and recognize that maybe they feel that, acknowledging it as best as we can. I also think that we need to bring healing to those struggling with oppressive narratives. And we all have oppressive narratives, you know, we all do. And just like white evangelicalism, white suburban evangelicalism has an oppressive narrative and it's a narrative that needs to be addressed and realized to say, hey, not all white suburban evangelicals are racist. That's an unfair, uh, illegitimate statement. But they may be doing things that is contributing to the problem. So we have to speak against narratives and we need to help people uh, that are struggling with oppressive narratives. I also think that we need to speak against narratives that are antithetical to the gospel that is the, the point that I think is most powerful here is that is, is that when Paul says there's neither Gentile or Jew uncircumcised or circumcised, or circumcised, he is speaking against a very powerful ethnic narratives that were at work in the ancient church, no less. Now you kind of remember something in Colossians, he's writing against, he's writing to the church and he is saying, look, you cannot divide on these issues. And so um, there is a at least a precedent that I find within Paul that is, is that we have to speak against narratives that are antithetical to the gospel. I also put it here that we also need to hold leaders accountable for perpetuating racial narratives, you know, where possible through a prophetic voice. And I have to tell you this, and, and I admire some some pastors who are doing this, and they do this at great cost to themselves because what can happen at times is that. Brothers will speak out against these racial narratives to their church. And those people who hold narratives that are against them, all right, or, or or hold problematic narratives, very often they will retaliate against their own pastor. And so for pastors, this is a call that, you know, we need support pastors who are doing this, but we also have to recognize the strength of character needed to speak out against these racial narratives. And so anyways, so these are just some thoughts here that I have for you um, today as we're thinking through this. By by no means is this completely exhaustive, but I do think that we need to begin to think about these racial narratives and to understand that as gospel-centered Christians, uh, we have a higher calling. We have a higher calling to bring people out of the narratives that are that are that are basically holding them captive by freeing them with the liberating power of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the end of this message. Thank you so much for listening. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen and amen. to Grace on Fire, a verb creative production. For show notes, links, and more, please visit mygracenation.com.